to welcome up our guest speaker tonight who's going to be sharing with you, Joe Young. I met, I met Joe when he was in high school. Can we, can we change the lights? Um, I met Joe when, I was in high, when he was in high school. I was a youth pastor, and we were at a Harvest Crusade, and our kids were just going crazy at the Harvest Crusade. And then um, his sister leans over and was like, hey, he needs a church. Can he? <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, come to church, Joe. And so uh, it started a great relationship, but I'm going to let him share with you. He took some of my uh, story I was going to tell, but it's all right. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, yeah, so Dave asked me to share my testimony earlier today. And all I could think was, man, my life has been so boring. I haven't done anything, like, exciting or anything. I, you know, I grew up in, like, pretty much a loving family. And, like, you know, my dad would play with me when I was little. Um, I was never, like, abused or anything. <laughs> so nothing exciting for that. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing that did happen to me when I was seven was my mom died of cancer. And that was, um, I don't know, it's something that it's tough to go through as a kid. It's tough to go through as anything. But I don't know if it's something you ever fully recover from, you know. But that's one of the things that, you know, God has really shown me is that he can heal through times like that and sustain you through that. Um, but also I would say that I grew up in sort of like an American Christian family, I would call it. We never went to church or anything, but if somebody asked us, to be like, oh, yeah, we're Christian. And so I never really went to church or anything growing up, but I heard, you know, about this Jesus character through, like, Christmas and uh, Easter, through all the, like, you know, Easter candy and stuff. But um, when I was about, um, I don't know, about 13 or so, my sister took me to church for the first time. Because, like, when I was little, I would spend the weekend at my grandparents' house, and they would take me to Mass at Catholic Church, but... I never knew what was going on. We just like stood up and sat down all the time. Um, and so my sister actually took me to, to church for the first time when I was 13. And, um, you know, a little bit before that, like I did uh, release time when I was in fourth and fifth grade. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but actually this church does uh, release time in schools around the area. And I'm one of the people that have come out of that. So you can see how it's a fruitful thing. But... Um, you know, just hear Bible stories and stuff growing up. And when my sister finally took me to church and I heard the gospel for the first time, uh, I went to a Monday night Greg Laurie thing when they used to do it at, uh, um, up in Costa Mesa. Uh, that's when it all sort of clicked for me. And I was like, oh, God died for me. Because before then, I don't know, I was a weird kid. I would like read a lot and stuff. And so I'd read the Bible and I'd be like, man, this talks about sin a lot. And I'm pretty much a sinner, like it says. And then I would read about, like, how you have to, you know, do all this stuff, like, in the Old Testament. And I'd think, man, do I have to give up bacon? That would suck. And so um, the, when I first heard the gospel, I was like, oh, this makes sense. I can't do it on my own. God has to do it for me. And he's the one that saves me. I just have to, you know, put my faith in him. And so I was too chicken to go down at the altar call. I didn't go down. But um, for me, it wasn't like one event. It was just like over a month period of time, I kind of went from I'm not a Christian to, yeah, I accept all that. And so, uh, you know, you're a young Christian. You need a, a, a fellowship, a body to be in with. And my sister was like, well, he needs to, you know, have some people his own age to be involved with. And they lived all the way down in Costa Mesa, and I lived here in Orange. And so um, that's where we met. Dave in the youth group at another Harvest Crusade we went to, and I just followed them back to this church, and they couldn't get rid of me. And so uh, through the youth group, I mean, we had awesome times from like, um, you know, going on trips to playing awesome games like Save Sam, where kids get hurt, and it's awesome, um, <laughs> you know, to things like Hume Lake and stuff. But beyond just having fun, you know, I, I learned a lot through, you know, Dave's teaching, and also just getting involved in a church and just growing through that and just having, um, you know, just a lot of awesome experiences with people that are sitting here now, whether it's, you know, spending the weekend at the Shores house and spending the night and stuff, because I was friends with their son, Edwin, you see him around, but even just how I've been a youth leader to a lot of the kids here, and now they've grown up and have gotten married and stuff, it makes me feel old, but... Uh, <clears throat> 
you know, lastly, the thing is, is that I want to focus on, you know, what Christ has done for me, and it's not just about, like, me doing stuff. I mean, you know, he saved me from death to life. You know, I wasn't somebody who was, you know, like, killing people or whatever, but at the same time, it's like, no, we're all sinners, and we all have fallen short from what he has set up, you know, that he designed us to live righteously. And so, just having that, you know, guilt taken off me and realizing that, you know, I can't do it on my own. I just need to give everything to him, and he's the one that saves me. is just so freeing, you know? It lets us lead, that li- <laughs> it lets us lead a life uh, that is not, you know, just so guilt-ridden and just so fearful. I just came back from Cambodia with a, a trip from my law school, and just to see how those people are in fear um, from, like, spirits and whatever, it's just so sad. You want to just tell them, it's like, no, Christ is the one that can save you, you know? You don't have to have all this fear in your life. But uh, he didn't just save me, but he also showed me a new way to live. I didn't have to, you know, be prideful and angry and just being basically an idiot. Uh, But I still get in the way sometimes. I don't want to do things my own way. And then I realize, oh, yeah, I'm an idiot. Then I have to let him, you know, (laughs) take the, the wheel again. But, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I have a tendency to want to do things my own way. But I have to keep reminding myself that, no, it's, you know, God the one, he's the one that saved me, but he's also the one that sustains me through everything. Um, So with that, that's pretty much my testimony. Like I said, it's not too exciting, but, I mean, I just want to give him all the glory because he's the one that does it all. So whether, you know, it's an idiot like me. (laughs) All right, Joe. So hold on, Joe. Yeah. So you just came back from Cambodia. Now, um, you went with the Trinity Law School, the law right. school you're in. Yeah. Now, what was the purpose for you guys going to Cambodia? Uh, we went there. It was twofold. I went for a class on human rights, sex trafficking, and economic development. Um, so I'd get lectures from my professors that were there. But also, the school went to establish relationships with NGOs there, non-government organizations. So some were Christian uh, ministries, others were you know, just secular organizations. But um, one of the problems they face is enforcement of law. Because like for an example, in Cambodia, there's a lot of good laws on the books. Um, their constitution reads very similar to ours. But at the same time, um, you know, there's a lot of corruption there. And so the government, for example, will just seize land from people and then just sell it to somebody else. And I mean, that's just a basic tenet of law. You can't just take somebody's property without due process. And so they need uh, people there to say, you know, no, you need to follow your laws that are on the books. And so whether it's something like that, or um, even to the extent of just seeing how the worldview plays out there in regards to the whole sex trafficking problem that uh, is going on there. Because I thought it was just a problem of like, oh, we just need to close down the places that are doing it. But it's I mean, it's a whole mindset that kind of plays into it. If you want to find out more, you can talk to well, me about share, it. Well, share a little bit about that. You said to oh. see how the worldview plays out. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, basically, you know, your worldview is like how you look at the world, kind of like your glasses that you use to see things. And so for us, we pretty much have a Christian worldview in America. Even if a person isn't expressly Christian, they still have the basic idea of like helping people who, you know, maybe can't help themselves or uh, just the inherent dignity that everybody, everybody has, and you can't just like, you know, treat people poorly just because they're of like, you know, a different group or something. But there, it's, it's sort of just the culture of, um, you know, the idea of karma, where um, people are, you know, through reincarnation, if they've lived a bad life, then in the next life, it's not gonna be as good. So there, you know, it's better to be a man than a woman so if you're a woman, then that means in your previous life, you must have been doing something bad. So if you're a woman, then that means you're like getting punished for doing that. And it's not like if you just ask somebody in the street, they will be can explain the whole system, but it's just what they pick up from the culture around them, if that makes sense. No, wait a minute though. I thought karma was all about love <laughs> and peace and yeah. let's all get along, yeah. but that's not the way it is. No. And so, like, I mean, I, I saw a guy going down the street who didn't have legs, and he's, like, just crawling along the street, you know, by himself. And there's nobody there to help him. There's nobody there to, you know, reach out. And so um, a lot of these girls get involved in the whole prostitution thing, uh, for one thing, because 
they don't know what else to do, but also too, it's, um, it's kind of hard to explain because the whole different mindset, but basically like they exist to help their family. They don't exist to like sort of live out the life that God has intended them to do. Not that helping your family is a bad thing, but there's no sense of individuality. Like you're a person of inherent dignity that can have a good life. It's like you're there to just, you know, make money for your family and send that money back to your family. And one of the easiest things to do is to get involved in prostitution. And so it's not uncommon for the moms when they were younger to be involved in prostitution and then they get their daughters into it and stuff. So the ministries that are there, it's not just enough to get the girls out of it, but they have to like give them a new place to live. They have to teach them some sort of you know, trade or something. But one of the cool things is a lot of these ministries that have been there for a while, what's happening now is um, the girls are moving on from you know, a simple trade, but they've been going to trade schools and learning um, you know, like hair cutting or stuff like that, or some even going to college. And so those simple trades of like t-shirt making or you know, basket weaving, stuff like that that they can sell, are actually having to close down, which they're sad on one end, but they're happy on the other end. That means that you know, they're growing. And so it's, I don't know, it just made it more real for me, like Jesus with his disciples, because so many times you, know, you read and Jesus is teaching on something, and it's like, no, you guys are totally missing the point. And the, just to see the patience of him, how he's willing to teach them and take them along, but to see how it plays out in you know, real life day to day over there, uh, I don't know, it just made it more real for me. So uh, as far as the human trafficking, sex trafficking, mm-hmm. um, the culture is not enough to change that. Mm-mm. What needs to change? It, it, honestly, it's going to take a whole different mindset. It's not going to fix itself overnight. Because it's not like this problem just came up in the last 10 years. It's been going on for hundreds of years. It's just that I think as it becomes easier to travel and more wealth is built up and stuff, uh, it's becoming a bigger problem. Because about three quarters of the Johns are from either that area or from you know, like Japan, Korea, or whatever. Um, Westerners make up about a quarter of the Johns. And so as you know, places like Japan and China and Korea become more uh, wealthy, they're able to afford to take trips and go over there and stuff. But also too, um, they don't have the same mindset of like a marriage like we do. Um, it's not uncommon for a husband to have like a mistress on the side or something, and the wife is there for um, child rearing. And we look at that and we're like, oh, that's horrible. But for them, it's, well, you know, that's just how things work. And to be fair, it's not just them. I mean, that's how history was practiced, whether it was the Romans or whatever. It's really just that Christian mindset that has given value to marriage and say like, no, you need to have the romance between the husband and wife, and they need to be committed to one another. You can't just have stuff on the side or whatever. And so, um, like, they were telling us how, uh, I think it was Korean businessmen, will um, want um, a virgin, basically, because they believe that that'll, like, give them some sort of strength for, like, a business deal the next day to give them, like, more virility or something. And so it, it's just a whole mindset that needs to change. And that's going to take a long time. And honestly, the only thing that I think is going to change it is the gospel. That's what's going to have to change because it's going to need to change people's hearts. Thanks, Joe. Yeah. Appreciate that. Thanks for sharing. Views get synthesized uh, or changed a little bit for Christianity or American culture. So when when you see... um, Buddhism, Islam, these sorts of things. The, the way they are here in America is not the same as the way they are in the cultures. If, if you want to see a worldview played out and you go to a culture, you'll see it actually being lived out, whether the people are thinking about it or not. For instance, often um, there's persecution for people who become Christians within a Buddhist uh, family because when that, when that child becomes a Christian or they give their life to Christ, the Buddhist family feels like, well, wait a minute, now you're, I have nobody to pray me out of hell because they have the nine levels of hell. So there's no one there to pray them out of hell, so then uh, persecution comes to that. So a lot of the times for uh, someone coming out of a Buddhist family, they end up having to get a new home when they become a Christian. Uh, people that have disabilities, they're not looked at with like, oh, man, we should 
go out of our way to help them. It's kind of like they deserve that, so let them, let them suffer. And uh, the difference is, but today we're talking about the gospel, and Joe just came from a place that he saw this place needs the gospel. And we need the, we need the gospel in our country. We need the gospel all over the world. And uh, amazing who God chooses to take the gospel. So let's get into um, uh, Mark chapter 4 tonight. And uh, <clears throat> before we actually get into the scripture, let me open in prayer. And then we will uh, get into to some of the text here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, God, for your word. And we thank you for the hope that the gospel gives, Lord, that you are all about liberating captives, God, setting them free, giving us liberty, and then a new life and a new purpose, God. We thank you for that. We thank you for what you're going to do tonight in this room. We ask, dear Lord, that you would teach us your word, reveal to us your truths, help us to apply them to our lives, and leave here different than how we came in. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in the year 2000, I went down to uh, Paraguay for my first time. Maybe, maybe it was 2001. I can't remember. But we went down to Paraguay to help uh, a missionary from Chile. He was a missionary. He was a Chilean missionary who was planting a church in Paraguay to help him build a church building. And I'll never forget when I got down there, uh, the, the first day we got there, because you know, Americans were very task-oriented. Uh, and most other cultures in the world are relationship-oriented, but Americans are all about the task. Let's accomplish the task. And uh, w- Dave, would you mind changing the air setting a little bit? It's a little warm in here. Um, thanks. <clears throat> the uh, Americans are all about the task, and we, we look to accomplishing something. So true to American form, we get down there to Paraguay. First thing we want to do, let's go look at the building. We're ready to get started. Let's roll on this thing, and, and we're ready to go. And uh, so we go look at this building, and it's a nice size building. It's got a nice. It's got two stories: bottom floor, top floor. And and our goal while we're there is to build walls, to put walls up on that building so they can start meeting. Currently, the church was meeting a little house. And when we got there, I thought our purpose, more than anything, was to build a church. When I found out. The reason God sent us there was to encourage this missionary couple. They had been through some really hard times in the past, uh, including uh, a robbery, uh, Hoel's wife, um, Gladys, being held at gunpoint uh, while Hoel was actually in the States at the time. So they had been through a lot, and, and we could tell when we got there, Hoel and Gladys had, were pretty much at the end of their rope. They were hanging on for all they could, but they were tired. And it was almost like us coming was a surge of, of uh, just encouragement for them to keep going. As we started building this church, every day we'd show up for work, we'd build, and then we'd fellowship with them and their church. I, I taught um, a couple of their uh, Bible studies on Sunday mornings. But one of the things I saw is we were in this living room of a house, and, and there was like 20 people in this room. And, and it, it was one of my first international trips like that. I, I had been a couple other places, but first time where I was out actually helping build a church building, and I was like, why are we building this huge building for this small little tiny church? There's only 20 people here. How is this actually going to go? I mean, isn't this kind of a waste of resources? And I'll tell you right now, when Americans go places, we can often take on a critical spirit. Now, I didn't make my, my thoughts, I didn't vocal, make my thoughts vocal, I didn't tell people about it. But I kept thinking about, like, why, why are we building such a big church? Well, two years later, I went back to Paraguay in 2003 and uh, what I found there, because we wanted to do the second story, and when we got there in 2003, what I saw was the bottom floor was full, and it was full of people, and all these people had come, to, the, Pastor O.L., his church was growing, it was doing well, and then we went back again, and I think it was 2007, and it was even bigger still, they had, uh, they had expanded to having a school, a Christian private school in the building, and it was just like, I looked back and thought, Boy, my vision was so small and so wrong back in 2001. I, I couldn't even see what God was going to do with just this little missionary in this little neighborhood because his school had become one of the top schools for people to get into. Parents would, wanted to get their kids into the Christian school, and they were reaching so many people in their neighborhood through the school and through the church. It was quite incredible. And tonight, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about how God grows his church, how he grows his kingdom as we go through these parables. Now, I want to remind you in Mark chapter 4, verse 13, 
Jesus asks a question after he gives the parable of the sower. He tells the disciples, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And so last week we talked about that parable of the soil being the key to understanding all the teachings of Jesus, all the parables, in fact, the whole word of God. And what is that key? Well, the key is seeking Christ, seeking God's kingdom first, and seeking after him to reveal these truths to us. Not just hearing the truths and going, oh, this is nonsense and throwing it away. But really saying, all right, Lord, in in you I find truth. You all seek. Show me what to do. And so we, we saw that last week. Now, again, becoming a Christian doesn't mean all of a sudden you just understand every parable. Trust me. In fact, I've been wrestling with the, a couple of the parables I'm teaching tonight for the last four weeks. I've wrestled with them in the past, and I'm still not totally sure about them completely because Jesus just didn't give us the meaning, the, the uh, interpretation like he did the parable of the sower. But it does mean that in him I will find truth, and eventually I will understand these parables, be it when he returns, when I go to be with him, or, or uh, eventually maybe some, at some point I'll just, the Holy Spirit will further enlighten me so that I can, I can better apply. Remember the word parable means to cast alongside. It's a story to cast alongside a spiritual truth. And Jesus is teaching in these parables so that those who want to know truth can receive it. But those who have no desire to know God, no desire for the kingdom of God, they'll look at it as nonsense, throw it away, and they'll be actually more confused than having understanding. So we're going to be at verse 21 tonight. Mark 4, verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now understand this, what Jesus is first saying. Because we read last week how he quotes from Isaiah that they'll ever hearing, they'll never understand, they'll ever seeing, they'll never perceive. And this idea of teaching in parables to confuse those who don't desire after God now he follows that up with Mark 4.21 when he says, first of all, what do you do with a lamp? Do, do, you, do you bring out a lamp? Now remember, we're talking first century Palestine, so we're talking a little clay pot, uh, and it's, it's got some oil in it with a little wick, and you light that, and that's your lamp. So you light it up. There's no electricity. We don't use lamps today, but, but here's what I do know when I've been out camping. I've never lit a lantern and then went and hid it in a box real quick. Got the lantern lit, everybody. You know, if I did that, <laughs> we can't see. Why would you put it in the box? That's ridiculous. Put it up. Put it as high as you can so it gives light in the whole place that we're camping so that we can see, so that we can do whatever chores we need to do in the dark so hopefully we won't trip over something in the dark or hurt ourselves or, or just sit, sit around in the dark. And it's amazing, by the way, what a little light does in a room, even just how much it makes you feel comfortable having a little bit of light. So Jesus says, no lamp is brought out, lit, and then put under a basket. No, you put it up on a stand. You put it up so it gives light to the whole house, so it lights it up. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. And here's where the point is. He's come to reveal to us truth. The question is, are we going to say, all right, I'm ready to receive that light, or are we going to go and say, let's put it under a basket? Let's, let's get rid of the light. Let's... Let's hide it so that we don't have to do that. See, we must understand that it is God who reveals truth in the darkness. The Bible teaches us that we've been in sin. We've been marred by sin. Our our ideas, our thinking has all become twisted and skewed. It's kind of like someone who put on the wrong prescription glasses. You see things, but things are a little fuzzy. They're, They're not quite as clear. In fact, depending on what prescription you put on, you may not really be able to see much at all. I have um, pretty good vision. I, I brag to my wife all the time about my great vision, but she says, she says too bad your hearing's not as good. And 
<laughs> I say, well, I have selective hearing, honey. What'd you say? Uh, so, but uh, I, have, I have pretty good vision, uh, so I, I don't, need, don't require glasses. My wife, on the other hand, though, requires glasses, and I know it's getting harder for her to drive at night, and things are getting a little bit less clear. But if I put on my wife's glasses, I can't see worth anything. Can't see anything at all. Everything's become blurry. And I really believe that that is what sin has done to the soul. Sin has so marred our soul, so marred our minds, that we have trouble even understanding truth and reality. That we have understanding, understand, uh, understanding God. We have trouble with that. And so Jesus Christ has come to reveal this truth to us. He's come to make it manifest, as the Scripture says here in chapter 4. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come into the light. Jesus has come to make these things manifest. Now, here's what he says. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That, that's an interesting idea because you and I look around, and I, me personally, I've actually never met a one-eared person I've looked for I know they exist. I know there's one-eared people out there. I've just never met one. Maybe you have. Maybe you've met a no-eared person. But most of us all have ears. But the interesting thing about our ears is we don't always use them to listen. We don't always use them to, to receive truth. Often we're, we're doing our own thing. We're on our phone. Oh, what was that? <laughs> you know, we're not really listening. And when it comes to the words of Jesus Christ... These are the most important words you could ever hear. The question is, are you listening or are you tuning them out? And Jesus gives us this warning, pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention because this is the most important stuff. Uh, With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. The way in which you receive the word of God, it will be measured back to you. Uh, Now, a measure would be like a bushel. So that's what they use to measure out grain. It's a, it's a measure. Um, but we, we have the same idea. We have measuring cups in the kitchen. We understand the idea of measurements. We understand the idea of weights. And the idea is how you value the Word of God, it will be given back to you. So if you value the Word of God, if you treasure the Word of God, God will give it back to you even more. He'll help you apply it. He'll help you understand it. He will... Uh, transform your very life and your very mind. Remember Paul uh, saying, let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Not conformed to the, the culture, the society, or the old way of living. So Jesus says, pay attention. It'll be measured back to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You know how we translate this today? We translate this as, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. That's essentially what's being said here. The rich get richer. Now, you and I don't like that idea for the most part. You and I feel feel a sense of, well, that's not fair, whatever the case is. But the fact is, is we know that those who have lots of money and invest it wisely get a lot more money. There was a book that came out not too long ago, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago at this point. I guess that is kind of a long time ago now at this point. But it was called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And the book is all about a a man who had two dads, two different families, a stepfather and a a birth father. And one dad was a blue-collar worker, and he worked all his life. He worked hard. He he bought his house, and and he worked hard and and, uh, did everything he could to, to live a decent life for his family. The other dad was a wealthy dad, and what he did was, instead of him working hard, he would put his money to work. And the whole philosophy of the book is, be the rich dad, learn from the rich dad, go put your money to work so that you don't work as hard and you get richer. Now, I don't necessarily agree with the philosophy of the book, but that's the idea there. Those who have, more will be given to them. Interesting, though, we're not talking about monetary wealth here. We're talking about truth. We're talking about the truths of the kingdom of God. The more you have, the more you desire the truth of God, the more you seek after his kingdom and his righteousness, it will be added to you, Matthew 6, 33. The more you seek after Christ, the more you will receive his truth. The question is, how will you receive it? How will you hear it? 1 Corinthians 
says something interesting in chapters, uh, chapter 1, verse 26. Paul says this. I think we got it there. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." Interesting, Paul gives us this truth. He says, listen, it's not what you could offer. It's not how good you were. It's not what your pedigree was. It's not that you were something special compared to everybody else. It's actually about how low you were, how not worthy you are, that God chose you. Chose you to do something marvelous for his kingdom. That's an awesome idea. Because I think naturally we all come to uh, we, we all have an idea about ourselves. I don't, I don't know very many people, unless you're uh, uh, Lynch for the Seahawks. By the way, I'm sorry, Green Bay fans, as you mourn today what happened. But unless you're Lynch, who's a, a bit boastful, most of us always feel inadequate. In fact, even those who are very boastful on, in the public eye or in the camera or who are downright jerks and, or whatever the case is, secretly we all know where we are unworthy and how unworthy we are and where we fall short. We all have standards on ourselves. And I believe that most of us don't ever feel that we really can do it. Most of us always feel a little bit inadequate. That there's somebody a little bit better, and I'll tell you right now, that if you're a Christian and you feel inadequate, well, that's great. Because it gives the Holy Spirit room to work in your life. Because he's going to choose the foolish things of this world. If you don't feel, if you feel like, man, I want to share with my coworker about Jesus Christ, but he's way smarter than I am. He knows all this technical stuff. I don't know any of that stuff. Well, that's great. Because you know what? God chooses those foolish things, the dumb things of the world, to shame the wise. He sh- I, man, I'd love to, to talk to this person, but he looks at me like a, a weakling. Well, that's good, because God chose the weak things of this world to bring down the strong. You see, Christ chooses the things that seemingly are unimpressive to do a great work with, and that's where we continue in our parable today. So be careful how, you're, how will you receive it. Verse 26, he said, and he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now this parable is fairly simple for us to understand. And and we can look real deep like, what's Jesus saying? All he's saying is, God does the work. God causes his kingdom to grow. But guess what? He'll use you to sow. He'll use you to be a part of that kingdom. I, uh, I was counseling, uh, doing some premarital counseling with a couple in my office, and uh, we, were, we, were, we got to a part in the book where it talks about the Holy Spirit. And the, the couple wasn't, they weren't believers. And so uh, every week they'd read a chapter, and then we'd come back, we'd talk about the chapter, talk about the marriage principles behind the chapter. So we had gotten into this chapter where it talks about the Holy Spirit in in the married couple's life. And I said, do you guys understand what the Holy Spirit is? (laughs) Not a clue. I have no idea what it is. Okay, well, let me explain what it is. And so we started talking about the Holy Spirit, and that led me into the gospel message. And I shared the gospel with them. And by the way, it wasn't really impressive. It wasn't, well, I didn't write this out, and I, I didn't have my three points, and man, they were power-packed points. You guys know me. I don't have power-packed points. I, I, I just started sharing about Jesus and how much he loves us and how he died for us. And, and when we receive him as our Savior, we're born again. We're freed from sin, and God sends his spirit to dwell in us and empower us to live for him. I said, would you like to become Christians? Would you like to be born again? And they said, Yes. And I was like, wait, wait. Uh, 
Are you sure? Do you have any questions? <laughs> it was almost like I was now trying to talk them out of it because I was like so shocked that they just said yes. And yes, I get shocked too when people say, I want to accept Jesus. I'm like, what? What? Because I, <laughs> I, I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready for them to say yes. And I was, and, and I was so shocked that I was like, wait, now what do I do? Oh, that's right. I say the sinner's prayer. <laughs> Let's pray together. Pray after me. And, uh, but anyway, the, the thing is, is that when we sow, when we scatter the seed, when we put the seed down, God causes it to grow. This, this bush here, this vine, technically, is a tomato plant. Amazing little plant. It's already got tomatoes growing for me. They'll be delicious. I will enjoy each and every one. And it, it's going to grow. And, it, and by the way, tomato vines get really big. But it's amazing how it comes from this little tiny seed. And I, this is a whole package of seeds up here. You probably can't even really see them. But th these little tiny seeds have all the DNA, the power, packed into it to grow into this. To grow into this amazing plant. Now, I plant it, and, and I, I know that we now have science, and we can say, well, the, this puts it, it germinates, and da-da-da-da. But it, I, I don't know about you, but I think every plant, every seed that I plant, and everything that grows, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that it works and, and it grows, and, and not only does it grow, but then it produces more, produces fruit, and then, then I can take that fruit and I can plant it, and it'll grow more. It's, it's incredible how it grows. And God causes the kingdom to grow. All you need to do is say, Lord, here, here's what I know. I'm foolish. I'm not strong enough. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm probably the weak things of this world. I, definitely the foolish things of this world, no doubt about it. I'm inadequate. But I'm willing to be part of your kingdom. I'm willing to seek you first. Use me. So when you go out from here and you sow, when you plant the seed, just let God cause it to grow. When you share the word of God with somebody, when you live out being one of his kingdom citizens, just wait. Just let God cause it to grow. The, the other cool part about this is the farmer can't screw it up. <laughs> The farmer just goes to sleep. <laughs> he plants the seed and go, goes to sleep. He's not going to screw it up. You're not going to screw it up either. Just allow yourself to be used by God. That little church in Paraguay, Pastor Joel and Gladys, were willing to let themselves be used by God. I asked Pastor Joel, what did he do? Uh, excuse me, you can't come into church late. I'm just kidding. I, just kidding. Yes, I got a smile. <laughs> that was risky. <laughs> so, uh, that little church in Paraguay, amazing thing about it was Pastor Gladys and Pastor Joel, before them, they came to Paraguay, Pastor Joel was a mime. That's what he was. He was a mime. You know, I'm talking about the, the... He was a mime. It's like, who's going to choose a mime to be a church planner? God will the foolish things of the world to go plant a church. And you know what? That church grew. And you know, I mean, Pastor Oel was faithful with the work and Gladys was faithful, but they didn't cause it to grow. God chose. They were just willing, all right, Lord, use me. I'm a mime. Here I go. He would teach us how to moonwalk. It was awesome. <laughs> but uh, that, it's amazing what God chooses to grow things. I... Um, the story of the Calvary Chapel movement is quite an incredible story. Back in 1965, when Pastor Chuck Smith was called, uh, he received uh, an invitation to come pastor this little church in Costa Mesa. And the ch church was 25 strong, 25 people. And, and he actually had a church going of about 200 in Corona. And it was going really well for the first time. He didn't have to work a separate full-time job to pay the bills so when he told Kay, his wife, he was thinking about going and leaving Corona for this little fellowship of 25, she thought he was crazy. She actually wanted him to get a psychological evaluation. She thought he was insane. But he said, no, the Lord's really put on my heart. We should go to this little chapel in Costa Mesa and pastor. So 25 people, 25 different views on where the church should go. It wasn't an easy starting point at all. 
But this little church, this little unassuming church, this little church with a, a pastor who, by the way, many of us have heard Chuck before he passed. If you haven't heard Chuck teach the Bible, you should listen. What I did, I had to listen to Chuck teach through the whole Bible. And uh, over the two years I was at the school of ministry, what I did was I turned it into a podcast and then I put it at double speed and it was like a normal person talking. Okay? And it was awesome. <laughs> but, but if you've ever heard Chuck, it, you hear this pause and you're like, wait, is it over? And then he starts back up. And, uh, you know, there wasn't anything about, I mean, we, we all love Chuck's teaching. We love what he, what he shared and what he, how he invested in the kingdom. But there wasn't anything about Chuck Smith to make you go, oh, this guy's a miracle worker. This guy's impressive. This guy's this. No, but what he was was faithful. And that little church of 25 people grew, and then it became the Calvary Chapel movement as they started to plant their first Calvary chapels. They, they, they had such a wave and an influx of, of people coming, these hippies coming to receive Christ and this church growing that every building they got to expand in, they outgrew by the time they moved into it. That's a good problem to have. Eventually, they got the tent on the farm fill. Eventually, they started planning out Calvary chapels. Now, today, I think there's over 3,000 Calvary chapels in the U.S., and I don't know how many around the world that have been planned. Now, they're all, some are very small, some are medium, some are large. They're, they're all over the map about where they're at. But amazing how this little congregation of 25 people and this one pastor God uses to grow into a great movement. And we're not talking about the whole church, by the way. We're only talking about one movement within the church, God's church. We're not talking about what's going on with other church movements. It's quite incredible how God will cause things to grow. And then when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle because the harvest has come. When it's ready, God will harvest. But it's not time yet. We're waiting for the harvest. We're wait we can't wait for God to come back. We can't wait for him to harvest, but it's not ripe yet. We're still out there sowing seed so that the Lord will cause it to grow. And then everyone will hear the gospel. Every nation, tribe, and tongue will eventually have received the gospel message. Verse 30, and he said, with, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Lastly, Jesus gives this parable. By the way, this is, this is a parable that I have, have uh, wrestled with for, for much time here. The, this parable, this little mustard seed. Now, mustard seed is, uh, here Jesus says, the kingdom is compared to this mustard seed, which is the, the smallest of all seeds on earth. Now, let me, let me make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Jesus is talking to an agricultural community. And this community, he's talking about plants they understand and plants they plant in their garden. It is not the smallest seed on earth. Poppy seeds are actually smaller than mustard seeds. But that wasn't the point of what Jesus was talking about. Uh, Fuller Seminary had some professors back in the 1970s who said, Oh, there's a smaller seed than the mustard seed. So clearly... Biblical inerrancy, we're going to throw out the door. And they started getting rid of biblical inerrancy, and, and that led to a wave of people saying, well, we can kind of fudge here how we interpret this and whatnot. Let's not do that. Let's understand the culture that Jesus was speaking to, the culture that didn't even have poppy seeds in it. They had mustard seeds, and they understood it. And so Jesus said that this is how we're going to compare it to, the kingdom of God. It's like this grain of mustard seed ridiculously small, kind of like my tomato seeds here, really small. And if you want a mustard seed, you can pick it up in the grocery store in the, in the uh, spice section. But when you plant it, and by the way, the black mustard uh, in Israel can grow up to 15 to 16 feet tall. This little tiny seed can grow into this huge bush. This is what the kingdom of God is, unassuming. And when we, when we look at at that Jesus Christ and what's going on here, we're talking about Jesus with his disciples, his 12 disciples. Uh, we have a tax collector, a zealot. We have some fishermen, pretty unassuming people. There's not, not positions of power. They're, they're not uh, very not notable people. They're not famous. They're, they're not special athletes. They're, they're, they're pretty normal people. 
Yet God is going to use that to launch his church, his kingdom, and it's going to grow. And the gates of hell will not prevail. Acts 1.8 says something quite incredible. Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven. And it says, Acts 1.6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That that was the question. Okay, so you died, you rose from the dead. Now is the time to to kick Rome out of here and, and, and establish your own kingdom, God? And uh, this is what he said to them. He said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. No, it's not time yet for me to establish the kingdom. But here's what's going to happen next. Here's what's going to happen next. This little small group you wait here in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere, Jesus told them. You stay right here in Jerusalem and you wait. And for 50 days after the resurrection, they waited. They waited and they waited and they prayed. And then on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The power came upon them. And look at where they started, right in Jerusalem. Right where all these things happened. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The gospel has been going and growing, and it's incredible. This parable in Luke is accompanied by the parable of the mustard seed uh, growing in this large tree. is accompanied by a, another parable in Luke, and this is what it says in Luke 13, 20. And again, he said to them, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, these, here's why these parables are a little tough. In Mark and Luke, he talks about the birds nesting in the tree. And in Luke, with this parable of leaven in the loaf, he, talks, he t- uses the illustration of leaven. Now, birds of the air often are, uh, which we saw in the parable of the sower, the birds of the air came and snatched away the seed that was sown, remember? They, they often represent Satan and demonic powers. Leaven often represents Sin within the Gospels and, and within in the Old Testament. But I don't think we want to get too particular about the elements of these parables and miss what the point of the parable is. So I think we want to be cautious to say, well, all right, what's the point of the parable? Often when Jesus would tell a parable, there was either a single point, two points, sometimes three points. But it wasn't for us to allegorize every element of the parable. We, we don't want to go that deep with it. And here's what we can say about these, both these parables. They're about supernatural growth and supernatural transformation. Extensive growth and intensive transformation. Both of these parables. The first one, the mustard seed, it grows way beyond what is expected to happen. It grows way beyond. Now, wh- whether the birds of the air are, are um, uh, false Christians coming into the church and causing problems or whatever, it could be. I don't know. But, but I do know the point of him telling it is this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's unassuming, and it's going to grow big. And when it comes to the leaven in the loaf, leaven is often used for sin. In fact, Paul says, don't a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. Don't let any sin into our lives. But, but leaven was something that Jewish people worked with every day. This was something every, every day cooking was, they used leaven in making their bread. It was only for three of the feasts that they would say no leaven. And they would put aside the leaven. In Passover, they would actually search the house and get rid of every bit of leaven. What was leaven? Well, leaven was a little ball of yeast or of dough that was ye- had yeast in it. It was a starter, starter dough. And they would just take a little, they'd mix up their flour and water and take a little bit of this dough, conceal it into the dough, and let it sit. And amazingly, this, this bread is transformed from a clump of flour into bread. And they bake it. And that's what leaven was. It was, it was uh, transformative. So here, I don't want to be so quick to think that this is about sin prevailing in the church. I think that that's a wrong interpretation. I think that this is really about Jesus giving two, two parables for us to understand how the kingdom of God is going to grow. And eventually, when Christ returns, he's going to completely finish the transformation. 
He's going to finish the growth of the kingdom. He's going to instill his kingdom here on earth. Last thing in Mark here, as we leave here tonight. Verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So Mark lets us know that Jesus spoke more parables, but these are the parables I've chosen to include in my gospel. These are the ones I want you to hear, these parables here. And here's what I want to encourage you with. You may be unassuming. You may feel like you're not worthy, that you can't do it. And I want to tell you, you seek his kingdom first. You treasure his word. You value God's word and his truth in your life. And if the Lord tells you to do something, do it. It's kind of like Bubba in, uh, <laughs> in Forrest Gump. Or, or Forrest, sorry, not Bubba. Forrest Gump, and the, there's a scene in the movie Forrest Gump that I absolutely love. Uh, Forrest is in boot camp, and he's um, told to clean his rifle and uh, reassemble it, disassemble it, reassemble it. And he does it extremely fast. And the, the, the drill sergeant's like, Gump, why, and, you know, he's being a drill sergeant, yelling at why did you do that so fast? And, and Gump just says, because you told me to. <laughs> That's why. You know what? If Christ tells us to do something, do it. Be care, pay attention to how you hear his word and how you respond. Because it will make all the difference. And God will use you to build his kingdom. Just wait. See how his word dwells in you. And by the way, I think the word of God even grows within us, and I apologize for going a little long tonight. The Word of God grows in us. You know, it's, it's amazing how different I am today than when I became a Christian. How different I receive the Word. How God's Word, as I, as I read it and I study it, it just grows in me, and, and I change. And it's not like I, I work really hard or strive. I just let God do His work in my life. So I want to encourage you to do the same. Allow God to do his work and go out and also sow the word of God among, among wherever you go. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the, your word. We thank you, dear God, that uh, to those who have, more will be given. And Lord, I treasure your word. And God, I can't wait. Ultimately, I know that your word will end in eternal life and relationship with you, God. So I look forward to that. And I pray right now for anyone in this room who's decided that, you know what, I'm done living my own way. I'm done doing my own thing. I'm ready to follow you, Jesus. I pray that they would just seek after you and say, Lord, save me. I need your forgiveness. I'm ready to follow you. Help me to understand your word, dear God. Lord, we thank you that you take the foolish things, the weak things, the things that are unassuming in this world, and you use them for your glory not so that we can boast but that we can uh, in ourselves but we can boast in you because you are doing the work look dear lord we thank you for your word bless our worship now in jesus name amen